this is Hannah Nordby with NDSU Adams County Extension, and you're listening to Agriculture Applied. Innovate, Relate, Create with NDSU Extension. On this week's episode, David Ripplinger, a bioproducts, bioenergy economics specialist with NDSU Extension, and I sit down to dissect the topic of carbon sequestering. It's a hot topic in the industry, and while the potential out there is positive, it's important for producers to have a good understanding of what it means for their individual operation. Go ahead, grab a cup of joe, and settle in to ponder innovative ideas and reflect on generational changes, which can help us create a better tomorrow. You're not going to want to miss out. Alrighty, well, welcome back to Agriculture Applied, everybody. We've, after a long-awaited break, we have, uh, I've started interviewing people again, and one of my first interviews, David Ripplinger. Welcome, David. I'm excited to be able to sit down and talk with you about carbon sequestration, and I just feel like it's kind of a hot word, a hot topic that's kind of been coming across my desk in the past couple months or so. It's been popping up, and I felt like it would be a good topic to cover on a podcast. So welcome. I guess to kind of kick things off, do you want to just give everybody a little bit of a background about carbon sequestering, what it is, what it's not, maybe a little bit of your background as your knowledge base with it comes from? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Hannah. You've been happy to be back and a chance to talk about carbon. So I've actually been giving a lot of talks about carbon this last year, because as you said, it is a pretty hot topic. Um, I've actually worked uh, with carbon or greenhouse gas emissions for, for more than a decade. The whole time I've been in this position, carbon has been a part of it. Uh, and so I have a, a pretty deep uh, understanding of it and a broader perspective than a lot of what uh, your listeners might be familiar with or a lot of what's been going on in the egg press. Uh, and actually, your, your question about carbon credits, what is it and what isn't it, is actually a great way to put it. So there's been a ton of... Uh, attention given to carbon offset credits. And you know these are essentially, uh, at least as they're appearing in agriculture, these are contracts that are being uh, provided to certain farmers. Uh, and it, it varies, it's kind of a young industry, but essentially asking farmers to adopt new practices, primarily no-till, strip-till, or the growing of cover crops. Uh, and by doing so, uh, their carbon is captured in the soil. And so that's that's a positive thing in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So we can get CO2, carbon dioxide into the soil, at least somewhat permanently. And so that's that's a carbon offset credit. But it, it's important to note, and one of the big things I always want to get across when I talk about carbon, it's actually a really small piece of what's going on in this bigger carbon space, both as it relates to agriculture, as well as how it relates to the broader economy. So as I mentioned, I've worked with carbon for, for a decade, you know, since I've been in this position, and it's been so much more. And again, just recently, this carbon offset market, uh, there are regulatory markets, there are other markets that are really quite important, that are, are, are present. Uh, and agriculture right now, even though we're really excited about it, and it has huge potential uh, to be a, a, an area of activity, a way to capture carbon or reduce carbon emissions, uh, but right now, agriculture is really small. And so uh, up through uh, 2019, 2020, of all the carbon credits 
uh, in this offset market, only about 1% of those were in agriculture. So really small. Uh, but it has gotten a lot of news. I'm, I'm glad that you're getting questions. There's, uh, you know, there's there's news in the press. There are obviously there are, there are folks out there today. There are farmers being approached with these contracts, and so I think it is really timely. Uh, moving on to your next question, the, the difference between uh, reducing carbon and sequestering carbon. You know, that's a great way to put it. And I'm, I'm probably going to steal some of this and maybe reframe how I I give some of my talks because it, they they really are different. So in agriculture, it, it, it takes a lot of energy. We have a lot of greenhouse gas emissions because we do a lot of work. That's, that's the best way to put it. Uh, you know, we use a lot of diesel fuel. You know, certain parts of agriculture, we use a lot of propane or natural gas. We use a lot of electricity. Uh, and so that has a, a greenhouse gas footprint. Uh, we also have, you know, the biggest source of, of emissions in agriculture are actually from nitrogen fertilizer. And not from its manufacturing and use, but actually from uh, emissions in the field. There, uh, a gas called nitrous oxide uh, is emitted in the atmosphere. It's a really bad greenhouse gas. Uh, and so if there are ways in which we can more efficiently use nitrogen, which we all want to do because it's expensive, you know, we can reduce our, our, our greenhouse gas emissions. You know, that's probably one of the easiest ones in terms of what we're releasing from agriculture. But most of the discussion has been about how can we capture carbon and store it in the soil. And again, this again works out really well in the case of agriculture because we have this huge interface with the environment. You know, we work hundreds of millions of acres of cropland. We have livestock on, you know, large amounts of land across the country. Uh, and in all of those activities, you know, carbon is flowing, CO2 is flowing. And if we use certain practices, we can capture that, that CO2, typically in biomass and plant material, and store it in the ground. And so that's really where the no-till and the strip-till come from. Every year when we grow a crop, you know, we have uh, plant material above the soil and below the soil. You know, we're typically interested in certain parts of the, the plant above the soil, which we harvest. And then we will leave the remaining part of the plant in the field, but we'll work it once. And it's really important to note. So if, if we didn't work the soil, and again, in, in, in your part of the state, you know, no-till is really common. Uh, you know, if we don't work the soil, most of that carbon will be uh, sequestered, captured in the soil. That's a great thing. However, if we have a regular uh, or a conventional practice of planting the crop, growing the crop, harvesting the crop, leaving the residue in the field, but then tilling it, especially heavily, all of that carbon that was captured temporarily during the season is, is, is lost. It goes back into the atmosphere. So that's really where this, this carbon uh, capture and sequestration comes from. It's also the same thing too with cover crops. If we grow a cover crop, you know, we can have a lot of uh, biomass. And in that biomass, we have carbon. We also have nitrogen. Uh, and if we keep that in the soil, manage it a certain way, we'll get a nitrogen credit, and we could end up capturing some of that carbon. Ends up, again, being a really great opportunity. Uh, but again, really fundamental differences. One is the, you know, what are we releasing? And how might we uh, make changes to how we produce our crops and grow and, and raise livestock? That would be like one half of it. And then the other half is how do we capture carbon uh, and store it at least somewhat permanently? Kind of interjecting here for a second i'm glad you talked about that whole process of okay when it's no-till how that carbon is sequestered because i have sat on 
some different talks where um, they actually encouraged tillage and it just, it got really messy as they were explaining it. And I was like, this doesn't quite make sense, but I'm not quite sure how to explain the whole process. And I thought you did a really nice job out there because there is, there does seem to be some misinformation. And I know, especially, um, you know, you get out east or in the organic world, like tillage is their main way to manage weeds. And so, um, you know, of course, these these producers want to be in on this opportunity. Um, but I think it's also a balance of trying to figure out how to implement those practices, but still um, manage those weeds in an appropriate way. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point, Hannah. You know, with, with all of these these practices, and again, you know, cover crops, the use of cover crops is spreading. The use of no-till is spreading. And again, you know, in, in, in southwestern North Dakota, it's been a common, if not dominant, practice for decades now. Uh, but as you said, it, it, it's really important to think about, you know, how might these practices affect a particular farm or field? Uh, because they're not going to work as well for everybody. And in some cases, they don't make sense. Uh, and it, it's, I think it's really critical for, for farmers and all of us in agriculture to understand that, that there's many ways, you know, if we're really focused on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, there's a lot of different ways we can do this in agriculture. Uh, and there are ways today that a farmer can have additional income, uh, but it might not make sense for them to do that. And, and from my perspective, that's okay. This is a, an additional opportunity or practice that could be adopted. Uh, I, I think for many farmers, it's worthwhile to look at. Uh, and it might be something that they do. At the same time, it, I think it, it, there's still a decision there. It's not a, everyone should be doing no-till or everyone should be doing cover crops. Uh, you know, it is, again, a, a farm by farm, a field by field decision that really needs to be made. Well, and then something else I also wanted to talk about too, maybe a little bit of a sore spot on the whole carbon sequestering idea is that you mentioned how in Southwest North Dakota, many ranter farmers have been no-tilling for like, you know, years and years and years. And so from my understanding, though, when it comes to carbon sequestering and um, being paid for it, uh, it's really incentivized. It's encouraging <laughs> producers that haven't made those practices part of their regular yearly operation. Um, and so is there any wiggle room to reward those producers that have been doing these, are forward thinkers, they've been implementing these practices for a while now? Yeah, so that, that's a great point. And so, as you mentioned, right now, most of these carbon offset contracts will not pay farmers who've been using the practice for years. And, and to step back to, to understand why that is. So the folks who are buying these carbon credits are typically large multinational corporations. So they, these are organizations like a Microsoft or a Google or an Apple who said, we want to go net zero. And they've looked at their own business and they've realized that there's only so much that they can do internally, easily. And now they're looking for other parts of the economy to do to, to find ways to offset what they're doing. So that's why it's called an offset. Somewhere else in the economy, you make a change, we'll pay you for it, but we're gonna take credit. And so if you think about this, this really sore spot, this idea that 
people who've had these practice for, practices for you, years won't get paid in carbon offset markets actually makes sense because Microsoft wants to pay for change. They don't want to pay you to do what you've been doing. Uh, they want to pay for change. And I think that, that that's right and fair from their perspective. As a no-till farmer, there is an inherent unfairness or, or you know, I, I can see where many farmers feel this is unfair, again, because you've been doing something that's very good for your farm, right? It, you know, you made it with those decisions and has been good for the environment. And you've been doing this possibly for 30 years, uh, but your neighbor hasn't. And so you might look at that and say, gosh, this isn't right. But to understand why Microsoft isn't going to pay you to do what you're already going to do. That doesn't make sense from their perspective. Uh, you know, the remedy for this is something that is being discussed and, and will, I, I think is almost likely uh, would be a, a, a government program that would provide payment to farmers who use these practices. And so I think that would that would help justify or address some of these issues uh, to, uh, you know, provide a, a benefit, a, you know, revenue to farmers who are doing this. Again, as a society, we're benefiting from every farmer who is in no-till production. We know this now, right? It's fully appreciated. Uh, and it does make sense uh, to some extent in an economic sense for us to pay you for these benefits we're getting. And so, it, you know, there is discussion now about how this would work best, how government payments might work. Again, this would be a, you know, a, a federal program likely administered by USDA that would simply say, hey, if you have uh, a field in no-till and you're not going to till it up in, in three years or five years, uh, you know, we'll pay you $10 an acre or, or $50 an acre, whatever that number might be. But again, yeah, that the concept is called additionality. Uh, you are not going to find uh, contracts that are going to pay you for practices that you've had for years. There, there's some that'll go back as, as far as, as 10 years to like 2012 and say, if you've gone no-till since 2012, you'd be okay. Uh, but, you know, looking at most of them, they're like, it's got to be like new within the last year or two or starting in this growing season. And You can't go and like break everything up for like the next couple of years and then try to jump in the market, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in general, that that we don't think that will work. So most of the contract terms, so they'll ask when you when you when you see a carbon offset contract, they'll ask you for production history. And in these carbon offset markets, it's generally expected that if you have that break, you know, that it would be uh that it might preclude you from participating in market. I was actually at a, at a talk yesterday in Wapaton and in, in Canada, they have a similar program, but this is a regulatory program. So it's, it's the government. And there are farmers who are, you know, uh, you know, truly considering, you know, breaking up their no-till ground. And again, it does become really tough because how can you tell that, say that a farmer wasn't going to do this? You know, there are certain economic conditions or growing conditions where a farmer might reasonably do that. Uh, again, you know, going no-till is, is basically a, a once-in-a-farm uh, farm existence decision, right? You do it, and it's going to be no-till forever, but it doesn't have to be. But, you know, the 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 carbon offset folks are are, are definitely aware, are not going to say, well, you, you plowed it up one year, now you're going back in, you know, sneaky you, we're not going to accept it. Uh, at the same time, how, how, how does anyone know that? you know, that that would truly be the case. Those are the practices they're going to be encouraging our no-till and cover crops. And there was yep. a third one, right? 
Yeah, and so they're 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 really looking at alternative tillage. So it could be strip till, some sort of conservation tillage instead of just traditional tillage. Okay. Well, and as you were talking, I was just kind of thinking like these are the new, uh, I don't want to say trendy things, but they're the new innovative practices that we're talking about right now. And so I'm sure, you know, if, you know, this kind of takes off and it's something that is supported, there'll be new practices that pop up and then those innovative farmers they can bring on those new practices and they may more easily be able to step into those new practices because they have been no-tilling for 30 years. And mm-hmm. that was maybe the twist I was going to put on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting. So they, they have been getting a lot of attention and, you know, all of these, these, these new possible practices typically have a number of, of benefits you know, some of them like go directly to the farmers. So, you know, going no-till, you know, the farmers, you know, in North Dakota adopted that primarily for benefits for them, right? You know, it's moisture control, a little bit of erosion control, and, you know, those in and of themselves made them worthwhile. And that's really still the case with with, with these practices. And then uh, capturing carbon is just like another thing, which is, it's like, great, it's another thing. And then, hey, if I can get paid for it, maybe that puts it over the top or maybe it's extra. Uh, but again, you know, the, 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 all of the, the research and work that, you know, has been done, you know, a lot by, by land grants, but by other folks, you know, has been looking at this wide range of benefits. Uh, but in the last year, it's really been, hey, carbon, you know, this carbon thing is really, really important. This is why you should do it. It's like, well, there's a bunch of reasons why you might want to do it. It just adds another tally to the list, right? Absolutely, yep. And again, we, and for some farmers, it might not make any sense, or it might not. There might not might not be enough tallies on one side to actually adopt it. But this adds more weight. Yep, that's totally fair to think about it that way. Now we've been talking about farmers a lot. Uh, is there any relativeness to ranchers? Any practices they can implement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, there, there definitely are, uh, and I'm not quite as well versed on those uh, for two reasons. One, uh, it, it's not, it hasn't gotten as much attention, both uh, from the research side yet or from the market side yet. But it's, it's identified and, and, and understood that there are things that uh, ranchers can do, uh, primarily looking at uh, rotational grazing. You know, finding out different ways that you can tweak your your livestock management practices in a way that can get more carbon into the soil and stay there. It's the same thing, uh, but we're still we're not quite as far along. And so there's you know there's an increasing amount of attention for, to this. You know, research has you know there's been some, but it's really picking up steam. Like as you said, there's been a lot of attention for for no-till and cover crops. Uh, and there has been some in, uh, you know, pasture-raised livestock, but it's really, we're really only getting started. Another area for growth. Yeah, and it they- is. And it, it's exciting because obviously, for a couple of reasons, one, you know, to, to decarbonize the economy, to like reach our goals, we need to do a lot of different things. Uh, and then it also, as an opportunity for agriculture, you know, for those who primarily ranch or only ranch, you know, this gives them an opportunity to have an additional source of revenue. Uh, and then that's really, 
how we're seeing it. But again, a lot of work is is underway and really just getting started on, on the livestock side. Right. Well, I know in Southwest North Dakota, you know, a lot of the producers in the area, they're farmers and they're ranchers. They have mm-hmm. crops and cattle, right? But that's not always the case in other places. And so as you're talking, another thought that's floating through my mind too is maybe this is a good place to kind of help uh, neighbors come together and work together. So maybe it's a farmer that doesn't have any cattle and they grow a cover crop and then they're wondering, what are we going to do with this cover crop? And they've got a neighbor with some cows and it can really just be something that can bring the different producers together and start them working together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, there's a lot of interest in it. And, you know, and I can just say to you, I mean, right now there are no major carbon offset contracts for it, but again, you know, it's, it's recognized that this is an opportunity. We're going to do more research. And it is one way in which we may see uh, carbon offset contracts in the future, or we might see the federal government, you know, come in and say, yeah, if you, if you uh, have these practices with livestock or livestock integrated with crop production, uh, you know, we recognize that as a way to benefit the environment and we're going to pay you for that. Well, and I think, so my next question really related to like, we're going to pay you for it. So where's this push coming from? You said earlier that in the last year, it's really become a bigger emphasis. You know, there's a lot of reasons you want to know till, but carbon has been the new, the new tally to add to the list. Yeah. So, I mean, the the money, so if we talk just about carbon offset contracts, all of that money is coming from the private sector. It's individual businesses who are saying we want to decarbonize. So it's coming from Microsoft's bank account for in, in, in those situations. Uh, you know, and we do have some programs. You know, there are NRCS programs. We actually had a, a cover crop kicker last March. If you grew cover crops in 2020, you could get a $5 per acre payment uh, via NRCS. So that would come from the U.S. Treasury. Uh, there was also just on Monday an announcement uh, that money from the the Commodity Credit Corporation, uh, which is part of the federal government, would would provide a billion dollars to look at new practices. It was for like demonstration projects. So I was going to say, if any of your farmers or ranchers are interested in this, uh, they can't individually apply, but if they wanted to visit with us at NDSU, you know, we could go and and get some of that billion dollars that's available. Uh, that's, and again, that's kind of a unique, uh, it's, it's essentially in some respects a bank. So they have their ability to create money. Um, and so that's where it's coming from. And then the one thing we haven't talked about is, you know, some of it might come from the existing customers of these crops and livestock. And so to me, that's where it gets really interesting. Uh, you know, I, I started out by saying, you know, that these companies have made these, these set these goals of decarbonizing. Well, you know, they can do it with offsets, which are from businesses unrelated to them, or they can do it with businesses that are. And so if you think about a food company, uh, many food companies are uh, interested in what their consumers, the, the, their, their, their customers think. Uh, many customers are increasingly interested in food with a story, you know, with this happy story. And, you know, is that something that we will be taking advantage of? The answer is yes. And so, you know, there's already a a case in point of that where Unilever has been working with Cargill, who's working with soybean farmers in the Midwest to to get these credits. And it's still still kind of a carbon offset market, 
but it's close. It's within that existing supply chain. And that would be another another source of revenue. And that, that money might end up coming from the, the ultimate consumer, uh, or it might be coming from that, that food company who sees the benefit from marketing or strategic positioning. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it does seem like there's a lot of um, different businesses or corporations that they are pushing more sustainable or in general it just seems there's like there's a shift across the nation as far as wanting to um be i think a conscious more conscious of some of those different practices and um and and i th- i think it's important to know too in general what we know at least to date is that cons- most consumers won't pay more for an environmentally friendly product but they will pick it so if you have two products with the same price next to each other on the shelf, they'll pick the environmentally cost one. Well, in many cases, that's enough, you know, to, to build or secure market share. That's enough for these food companies to, to go ahead and, and use, you know, or, or to, to, to have their suppliers, their farmers adopt these practices. Oh, yeah. And we could go down such a bunny trail with uh, consumers and um trying to understand the mind of consumers mm-hmm. and where they're going to put their money and their dollar and spend their, yeah, such a bunny trap, but we won't, yeah. we'll, we'll, you'll keep it on track yeah. for today and everything. Um, kind of, we've talked about it a little bit, but can you just reemphasize what exactly is left to figure out when it comes to determining carbon credits and the whole process? Yeah. So that, that's a fantastic question. So there's a lot. Uh, so we have done a lot of research uh, at, at research universities at land grants. Uh, there's also been some privately funded, privately conducted research. Uh, so we know more about what's happening uh, in terms of any of these practices. The truth is, and I, I, this isn't meant to be a, a unfair criticism of soil scientists, you know, soils are soils are really complex. So if you remember your soil science class, I didn't even take it. Uh, you know, I mean, just extremely there, it's extremely complex system. There's all sorts of things going on in the soil. And then if you think about the, the diversity of our crop lands and pasture across this country, it's tremendous. And so we need to do a lot more research just to understand those relationships. Uh, and it's very expensive research and it takes a lot of time. Uh, like in many cases, like good research requires. Uh, at the same time, you know, Understanding that is important. We also need technology to better better measure uh, carbon capture uh, and, and carbon flows, and and so there's a lot of work starting in that. And then we also need to do work to identify the best ways to develop these markets and to have policy. And so if you think about where we want to go, we want to efficiently, uh, economically decarbonize the economy and the economy is huge and if we focus just on agriculture another you know huge industry very complex industry you know we we need to better understand the science of of soils and again we have really wonderful folks including at ndsu uh, and across the world who are working on that but to understand how carbon and other greenhouse gases are moving through the soil and could be captured in the soil uh, so we need to we need to do a lot of research on that, and then we also need to better understand or or develop technology 
that can be more effective in, 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 in tracking it in real time. And then finally, the last leg is we need to develop really efficient markets or policy so that we can do this on a large scale and, and, and create capture and then share that value with the folks who, who create it. So to get that to farmers, uh, to get that to the folks who are going to uh, make these changes in the environment. So again, there's a, there's a lot more work to do. Uh, this is really, in some respects, we're very, you know, we're, we're in the beginning of chapter one right now uh, of where this is likely going to go. Uh, and there's a lot of learning that has to take place. Some of that will be uh, university research, uh, you know, research that we're continuing to do at NDSU and, and elsewhere. And a lot of it is going to be uh, trial and error and evolution. You know, we see this in the, the contracts, those carbon offset contracts. You know, they, the terms are changing. They're evolving as, as many people are realizing that we, we have to find a better way to uh, identify terms that work best for farmers. Because if we want to fully decarbonize the economy, we've got to do a lot. And we really need almost all farmers on board to some extent, and most of them doing something. And we don't know what that best practice is, which is the science part. We don't know the best way to track it, which is the technology part. And then to best finance it, which could be a, a policy issue with state or federal government or a market issue with private industry. You know, I was listening to a podcast last night and in it, they said, if your agronomist doesn't respond to every question you have with, well, it depends, then they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and I had to laugh because I was like, yeah, an extension, our favorite go-to line is, well, it depends and it's complicated. And so as you're talking about what's left to figure out, I'm almost thinking we're in the, yeah, the first couple pages of the first chapter, and yeah. there's still a lot of work to figure out what the best scenario is and how to do it the best way. And also keeping in mind that um, it's just what we're working on right now and what we're wanting to do doesn't happen overnight. It takes years and years. And you think about how long it takes if you're no-till um, to develop even, you know, an extra layer of up topsoil, it, that's something that does not change overnight at all and it just adds to the complexity of the whole situation yeah it, it really does you're exactly right i actually was giving a talk uh earlier this week uh in in minnesota to certified crop consultants and you know very well-versed group i mean very intelligent know a lot about a lot of things right which which they need to do to help work with farmers who also need to know a lot of about a lot of things and, you know, I was talking about carbon, but it's how does all of this fit into the bigger picture? And then how can you manage, you know, this new opportunity with everything else? And it, it, it almost seems insurmountable. It's like, oh, my gosh, one more thing. But if you really think about what we do in agriculture, you know, we have continually innovated, you know, for, you know, more than a century, you know, adopting new technology, growing new crops, having new practices. And this is really just the the, the next thing. Uh, and we've already done dozens of other things. And so it, it can seem to be too much, but it, it's really, it's not unbelievably novel. Uh, and a lot of farmers, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, clearly a generation or two from now, it's like, 
oh yeah, we use this technology to do this. We track our carbon with, with our practices on our farm. We capture X many tons of carbon. It will be as, as common or as, as well understood and accepted and unnotable as something of saying, yeah, well, I grow corn and I get, you know, so many bushels an acre. I grow wheat and I get so many bushels an acre. I, it'll take time, but again, it is just, just one more, one more thing that we uh, get to deal with in agriculture. Again, I, I view that as fun. Uh, at, at the same time, it, if you think about it certain ways, it, it can be overwhelming. Right. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. And you think about how I think there's a lot of people that are still dealing with the aftermath effects of the dirty thirties and, it's just something that's going to take time. So takeaway message, point, bullet point number one, it's going to take time, but it'll we're headed down the right track with it. How about kind of wrapping things up mm-hmm. um, with it being such a new and changing idea? If you're a producer and you're approached about um, carbon credits, what are some what are the top three? Let's narrow it down. So what are maybe the top three questions that you should make sure you ask to make sure that um, you don't find yourself in a pickle? Yeah. So I think that's great. So it, it, it there's a lot of things that I think you should do before you even reach that point. And I think that is, you know, to look at your farm uh, and your current practices, you know, look at these new practices, uh, you know, again, they might not be new to you. Uh, you know, but, you know, changing tillage practices or growing cover crops and possibly to work with others, you know, if that's extension or if that's with agronomists or crop consultants to get a good feel on what that would mean to your farm. And again, to do that first, because uh, the the folks who are bringing these contracts to the table are well-intentioned. They want us, you know, we all want to be successful, but, you know, they frame the discussion a certain way. And I think that that is and isn't helpful and that farmers would be, be better served by having a grasp on the practices uh, and if they're close to making sense uh, to, to, to do things better. One, if, if they are, you know, if they're already doing some of these practices, you know, they can say, well, you know, I'm no till, so that doesn't count, you know, or, you know, d- that would be the first question, you know, d- how, you know, I've been doing this for so many years. Is that an eligible practice? I'd also you know, farmers, if they've done their homework, possibly with other folks, you know, to say, gosh, you know, I am really close on adopting this new practice. I've already looked at it. What are you willing to provide? And so is that enough to make that change? I think for me, that's 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 the first thing that all, all farmers should do. And all of us in agriculture should have a handle on, you know, what are the implications of these practices on a particular field or on a farm? Or, you know, as we talk about livestock for an operation. The other thing that I think is also important we haven't really talked about is that farms, and we actually did start with this to some extent, you know, farms have a carbon liability. We emit significant amounts of greenhouse gases. Uh, It's in absolute terms and relative terms, considering what we actually do and what we produce, it's not that much. But farmers should also understand that you know, it, it's being presented as an opportunity and it is an opportunity, but, you know, those other emissions uh, are there and there could be a future not too far away where those emissions are a liability, where they could be a bad thing for the farm. And so to 
fully understand both the opportunities that exist as well as some of the potential pitfalls that might be ahead are also really important. Uh, and the other thing I, I would recommend to farmers too is, you know, I would, I, I would really consider a couple of things. I would, I would review the, the one-on-one on how to review contracts and terms. Uh, I would, you know, look at, you know, what's the duration, what's the penalty if something happens. Uh, you know, how many, I, I always ask those questions, you know, how many farmers in the region have you signed up? Kind of, you know, piggybacking maybe on the good work of your neighbors. Uh, but I, I do think that for farmers, if you've done your homework, and, and now is a great time to do your homework, uh, to get a feel on it. You know, if you have time, you know, if you have bandwidth, yeah, to, to not shy away from that possibility. Uh, you know, because some farmers, you know, you're able to, to generate, you know, $10, $20 of additional revenue an acre. And that's substantial money. Um, and again, we don't know exactly where this is going to go, but you know, to engage with this 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 new market with this new opportunity, I think is done better now than later. Uh, even though you might not be signing a contract uh, for years, and, and maybe not ever. But start with the education. Be familiar with what's going to be going on and the language that might be coming at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important too. I think there's there's the other things, uh, you know, you know, many farmers uh, and ranchers are renters. You know, to talk about this with with the landowner, uh, because a lot of these promises can't be made by a farmer who rents. You know, you're really talking about property rights tied to the land. So to talk to them, so and make sure that the landowner knows what's going on. Uh, landowners in general will probably be more interested in this because it improves. Uh, uh, some of the qualities of the land, you know, in terms of, you know, a, you know, moisture control, erosion control, organic matter, which are pluses. Uh, and then uh, definitely think about talking to an attorney. You know, these these contracts are are not not a page long, uh, and there are various terms which are important uh, that that farmers definitely need to know about. It can be, you know, it can be a great opportunity. I, I know there are farmers in the Midwest who are very happy about this and, and you know I've been engaged uh, are are in on these contracts. Others who are a bit more skeptical and some who you know have have no interest and may never may never uh, actually get to a point where they sign a contract. Right, but the future of agriculture is changing and looking different. And those producers that are willing to be forward thinkers, I think, will definitely reap the benefits of that. So. Um, yeah, I appreciate you sitting down and talking with me, David. Um, are there any last thoughts that you want to make sure you hit home for listeners? Or do you feel like we sum things up pretty well? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, one other one other point would be uh, to, to view this uh, in, in, in a kind of straightforward way. I know that a lot of folks have certain thoughts about climate and climate science, uh, and, and I, I think that's fine. But you know, view this, especially in the terms of, of carbon offset contracts. You know, this is a potential customer business opportunity. So it doesn't matter really what you think about climate and climate science. You know, it could be good for your farm. Uh, the same thing with with regulation. You know, some of these things you don't get to pick; they're just going to be there. Uh, and so to not fight it. And, and the analogy I always give is, you know, we in North Dakota grow a number of different food crops, many of which, you know, we don't consume. 
and so I, 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 I like to frame it as all of us who grow, you know, lent, you know, lentil consumption in North Dakota is nil, but we grow a bunch of them. Well, that doesn't mean you have to like, like lentils or eat lentils. There's a market. And if that market provides an opportunity for you and your farm to look at it uh, not, and, 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 and do your best not to get caught up in, in your thoughts, you know, understanding attitudes towards climate. Uh, because this opportunity, as well as some of these risks, are real and present, uh, regardless of the underlying science. Right. So kind of leave some of those emotions out of it and just think about it as a business opportunity, business mindset, and focus on what's the best fit for your operation. And are those practices what are going to work well for you? And like you said, it is a pretty significant chunk of change that can make a big difference for that operation. Okay, well, thank you so much again, David. And I guess we'll just call that a wrap. Sounds good. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you for listening to Agriculture Applied. This podcast is brought to you by NDSU Adams County Extension, host Hannah Nordby and editor Nora Larson. Special thanks to Strong Coffee and Peanut Butter for making this episode possible. Have safe, be fun, and watch for deer.